If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. We're going to be walking through that passage, but I didn't want something so beautiful, such a lyrical poem about the most important topic that we could talk about to, to sort of be broken down and analyzed before you just sort of heard it and let it wash over you. Now, if you know me very well, uh, you know that I'm a bit of a crier. And uh, this was new. It's relatively new. The last several years, um, I find myself choking up uh, at the strangest things. And uh, uh, if you're in my community group, you know that. And so you're thinking, I'm sure that many of you, if you, when you went to look at the personal worship passage this week and you saw that it was Matt preaching and it was 1 Corinthians 13, you just, oh my gosh, this is like giving crack to a crack addict. I mean, he's just going to get up there, cry and pray. And uh, uh, Katie Nicholson, uh, who's in my community group, has told me whenever you preach, I just bring a box of Kleenex because I know you're going to cry and that makes me cry. So... So uh, I don't want to do that because, um, again, this is something that we do need to embrace and absorb. It, it, it has the passion. It has all the passion it needs. And, and so I, what I want us to do is I want us to reason together through the redemptive love of God and what that means. And so uh, Didi and I were talking this week and we thought, um, you know, what better source of a deeper understanding of love than the modern love song? So... Uh, what we did is we, we compiled some love songs to help us, again, begin this conversation, to help you deeper understand the meaning of love. I want to know what love is. I mean, I'll do anything for love. But you know it's, con- it, it's a little confusing. Do you just go up to someone and say, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Obviously not, because you can't hurry love and you can't buy love, because that's illegal. So let's start by just asking the big questions. What's love got to do with it? How deep is your love? Can you feel the love tonight? Are you ready for a thing called love? Where is the love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Love is a battlefield. It's like oxygen. It's a many splendored thing. I actually hear that love is the answer. But you know, I can't make you love me if you don't. 
Even though all you need is love, and at the same time, it's wrong to love you. I mean, I, I love you like I, a love song, baby, but let's be honest. You give love a bad name, and you're nobody till somebody loves you. As long as you love me, I can't get enough of your love. I don't really understand that one. So apparently, from what I've gathered, I could be addicted to love. I can be drunk on love. I could be crazy in love. I can actually physically bleed love. I can even be accidentally in love. And then there's a higher love, the power of love, the burning love, a sea of love, tainted love. I don't know if I want to know anything about that one. I, I never knew love like this before. I mean, nothing is going to change my love for you. Okay, that's not true. I said I love you, but I lied. Love stinks. So maybe that's all that needs to be said today, but... That's an ode to the love song. That, that, and really, it's a great representation of the confusion that we have, the love confusion that we have in our culture. And uh, because we live in this culture, and really, it's not just this culture. It's been all of, of humanity. We live in a, but we do live in a culture uh, that really understands love as a consumer thing, um, uh, something that is a give and take. There's a... There's a Bruno Mars song right now called Grenade. It says, I'd lay, I'd lay, fall on a grenade for you. I'd take a bullet to the brain for you, but you wouldn't do the same for me. So Bruno, he's, he's got the right idea, but he's a little confused about how love works. Uh, there, there's a TV show, and I'm a big fan of it, Deadliest Catch. How many of you watch Deadliest Catch in here? Okay. Well, I'm a huge, I'm a nut, I'm a nutcase for Daily Sketch. It's basically a soap opera for men, is what it is. Um, men go catch crab, but while they catch crab, they have interpersonal problems and people die and, and, and all kinds of things like that. And I literally the other night, Dee Dee was sick in bed and I was texting her what was happening to Jake, you know? And, uh, so she just texted me back and said, I'm so sorry for you. Are you going to be okay? And, but, but these guys are mariners, they're sailors, and, and as you watch the show over time, you see that they go through these tremendous storms as they're seeking to accomplish their mission and their purposes. And what happens when the biggest of storms come is there's this island that they go to, and I can't even remember the name of the island, but they go to this island and they anchor off the leeward side. They drop an anchor behind it because the, in the island there's strength and there's protection and there's safety and there's security and there's freedom from the storm. And so as we move into this idea, into this conversation about love, I want you to think of love fundamentally as that thing. Because here's the deal, there are lots of kinds of love. The Bible describes different kinds of love. There's four different words in Greek for love. There's, a, there's agape love that we're going to talk about, but there's also storgy love. That's like I love ice cream, I love my, my doggy. I know for some of you that's an agape love, but there's 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 that kind of love. There's philos, phileos love. That's that's the, the a love of a brother, and there's eros love, and that's sexual love. But here's the deal: the kind of love that we're going to talk about today that we see in First Corinthians 13 is the redemptive love of an eternal and unchangeable God, to which all of those other forms of love anchor themselves for meaning and for purpose and for redemption and for flourishing. The redemptive love of God. It's the love that your marriage was founded on. It's the love from which good parents love their children. 
It's the love that makes people die for even those who would persecute them. It's the love who makes you do honest things and that makes you do honest things in, in business when no one is looking. It's the love that's rooted not in the response of other people to it or in its potential for success in this world. It's the love that's anchored to the eternal, unchangeable God who fundamentally created all things for flourishing as an outpouring, as an overflowing of the love that is fundamental to his character. So I grew up with a progressive understanding of this kind of love. I mean, I even remember when I was real little, I didn't know it for what it was, but but it was love. I remember these two big people in my life, my parents. And uh, I remember that uh, I was just always safe when I was with my parents. It's funny, it's kind of like Charlie Brown. I don't even remember their their heads when I was little. I just remember like, you know, their torsos and their legs walking around because that's kind of all I paid attention to. But I knew that there were two people that when they were in the room, things were okay. I knew there were two people that were just really invested in me. I mean, like, you know, they were would get really concerned about the slightest dangers. And they would get really excited and proud about the, the slightest little successes or victories that I would have. And I knew that they were... They would sacrifice for me. I, I knew that when, when I was with them, I was safe and secure. And then I would be successful. And there was some sense I even had that when I was with them, I was in some way invincible. Because even as a little kid, I had some sense that their sacrifice was unlimited. Their capacity to sacrifice for me had no bounds. And so somehow, that was God's first little breath into my life. Maybe you didn't grow up that way. Maybe you didn't have that understanding of, of love from the very beginning. And I'm sorry for you, but we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what husbands need and what wives need and what families need, what children need over the next several weeks through this lens of the redemptive love of God. So then I, I, I grew and I, I got into those adolescent years, you know, so I had the, the flutter of the frantic flutter of the adolescent crush and the college sweetheart and that kind of Roman candle love is what my college pastor used to call it. He used to say there's Roman candle love and then there's a love that's like the burning embers of a fire that's long lasting and really is useful. But then there's this Roman candle love and I, I remember having that and just gazing into, into her eyes and and thinking, you know, I could totally abandon myself to you. And looking and seeing, so we thought the same response. And, and we, we really believed that in these teenage adolescent relationships. But you know, that was funny. I, I met Dee Dee and it was like, I look back on all those things and they just seemed like counterfeits. And I'm sure that any of the girls that I dated felt the same way. <laughs> Probably really so. Um, but by God's grace, I was introduced to the love of Jesus as I grew up. I had parents who loved me with the love of Jesus, and they they invested in me uh, not only personally, but as they involved me in their church. And as youth pastors began to love me and show me their their love for me. I remember my first youth pastor, Bob Forbes. I was kind of a punky middle school kid and Bob just, he just loved me by letting me hang around him. I was always around Bob. I would hang, sit in his office. I would follow him around. I, he would take me on retreats that he was speaking at and things. And, and I look back and I think, boy, I hope I, that had to be annoying to him. But, but, but Bob loved me just by being present with me. 
And then I had Jerry Reed. Maybe some of you have had him in seminary. And Kent Keller, uh, he's a seminary professor now, teaches Hebrew. And Kent Keller, my youth pastor, is that, you know, Jerry just loved people. He could not get mad at anyone. He, he just, it wasn't in him to, to, to get angry or bitter or resentful toward other people. And, uh, he was the one who told me, I said, what do you do when you're so mad at somebody? He said, you pray for them until, until it just, it doesn't feel right to be mad at them anymore. And then you go and you talk to them. And so he taught me a little bit of this redeeming love. And Kent Keller was a man of great integrity that taught me about how you live when no one's looking and about that pure, pure sacrifice and devotion and abandonment to Christ. And so, so God invested all these things in me. And he's begun to reveal to me throughout my life and, and reveal to us as a church that there is a love, as I said, rooted in eternal and unchangeable character of God and personified in the life and work of Jesus. And here's what it is. It is the operative principle and the fundamental fruit of all of Christian existence. The redemptive love of God, the self-sacrificing, eternal, unchangeable love of God that you're anchored to and that affects all of your relationships, which, by the way, are all supposed to be love relationships. That's the thing that is strong. That's why you have hope. That's why there's possibility of change. That's why you can have compassion, because it's rooted in this eternal love of God. And it is the operative principle, the fundamental fruit, of the Christian life. In its absence, which is what we're going to see today in this text, because that's what Paul was addressing. In its absence, it is the clearest evidence of the absence of Christ. Paul today is going to hold this up, this, this redemptive love, as the by far the clearest evidence that Jesus is not in you. Let me, let me say it as plainly as I can. It means you're not a Christian. The absence, the utter absence, the utter absence of the redemptive, unconditional, sacrificial love of God is evidence that you are not saved. It says you are nothing. You are worthless without that. If it is not coming out of you, it says, it is not in you. And if it is not in you, then Jesus is not abiding in you. And here's the deal. Because we don't believe in works, we believe in a relationship, we know that if Jesus isn't abiding in us, there can be no redemption. If Jesus isn't abiding in a marriage, it can't be redeemed. At best, it can be tolerated. If Jesus isn't abiding in at least part of a relationship between a husband or a wife or a father and a son or a mother and a son or a mother and a daughter or co-workers or a business or a boss and, 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 and their co-workers or business rivals, if, if Christ's abiding love isn't there, there can be no redemption. There can be no flourishing if it isn't present. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that all of human conflict and suffering, all of human conflict and suffering, let me start intimately and say the problems you have, the problems you have personally, the sins with which you struggle, the people that have sinned against you, the the difficulties you have at work, the things that don't seem to work the way they should, I'm going to be so bold as to say that every one of those things, and then in the broader macro scale, 
social ills, inequities, injustices, all those things that we think can be fixed if we just have the right people doing the right things in our, in our political system, in our society. All of those things can be traced to one simple problem. One simple problem. A deficit in Christ's redeeming love and the work that results. And so to follow him is to completely immerse yourself in that love. It means that you will choose to love every single person that you encounter, either in a moment or for life. Husband, wife, sons, daughters, friends, with the same love that redeemed you. Now hear that. You will love them. And this is the reason Jesus has power to say this. This is the reason there's clout behind his words. Because he says over and over, you need to love with the same redeeming love that I loved you with. It means you'll forsake selfishness. You'll forsake pride and gossip and rivalry and bitterness and resentment, even against those who have wronged you personally. You may think, oh, but come on. I mean, there's boundaries, right? Well, not for Jesus, there's not. Instead, you will become a part of the redemption and flourishing of people. Not only can you not refuse to love somebody, even someone who's wronged you, it says not only can you not do that, it gives you the double punch in the gut. It says you must actively love them. You must actively love them. You must have compassion for them. And I'm going to just keep throwing that little phrase in there that ought to be in the back of your mind. Did Jesus state it on your little show? You must actively love them the way I actively loved you. You must have compassion for them the way I had compassion for you. You must seek for the, you must, you must pray for and hope for their redemption and their flourishing the same way I did it for you when you hated me. There's no escape. This kind of love never, ever, ever gives up, and it never fails because it is rooted in the redemptive, eternal, unchangeable love of the God who saved you. So, where does it come from? There are a couple places in Scripture, uh, actually throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament we study, right? In the Old Testament, we see God... Uh, revealing his redemptive love progressively through the nation of Israel. Uh, and I'm going to just throw some things at you quickly because I want to get to the passage. But there's an Old Testament concept of love. It's a word, uh, chesed. I hope I didn't get anything on you there in the front row. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. We're a little shield. Um, this word is very hard to translate. In fact, there's even a note in your RSB that says that, uh, uh, associated with Psalm 136, where, where God uses this word over and over again through the psalm. The, and, and here's how it's translated, the steadfast love of God. Very specifically, God's steadfast love. And so that's the best crack at interpreting it. But let me tell you what it means. It was very radical to them in the Old Testament times, uh, in, in those ancient times, because all the gods that they knew of were not about love. They were about being loved. They were about being served. They were about being sacrificed to. And they were very uh, inconsistent. They were, they were not perfect. There was really not this idea that they were perfectly just and merciful and all these things necessarily. They were really just all powerful and they were in charge. So what did I do to, you know, if I wanted my crops to grow, I had to appease, right, the sun god and the rain god. I had to do these things. Um, these sort of phenomenological gods, I had to appease them so that they would 
Throw me a bone, right? So then God comes on the scene, the one true God, and he chooses his people Israel, and he says, here's the difference. I, because of my eternal unchangeable love, have chosen you. Just the way you are. You're small, you're weak, you're pathetic. You rebel against me all the time. You get it wrong. You worship other gods. You worship. When we remember that, when you say you worship other gods, it doesn't mean like my rivals. It means like you worship nothing over me. You pick nothing over me, your creator. My love for you is my covenant mercy on you because of my nature and character. And I want you to fill your name in throughout this sermon because of my Matt's nature and character. Because of my nature and character, I will be patient with you, my people whom I love, meaning I will withhold my rightful justice and wrath against you. And I will be merciful towards you. That's active. It means I will shower kindness on you. I will judge unrighteousness. My wrath will be meted out as is necessary. But to a thousand generations, I will love you, no matter what you do. And through you, I will bless the world because I love all of my elect. I love all of the world. I love all of the nations. I choose you. That was a radical concept in the Old Testament. And you see it everywhere. When, uh, when Israel was fleed, freed from slavery in Egypt, Moses celebrated chesed. When God grew, uh, gave the law to Moses, he said it was because of his chesed, his, his covenant mercy, his steadfast love that he was giving his law to his people. So, so God says that because of his love, he's dispensing it. But then he says, okay, because of that, in Leviticus 19, he says, don't glean your fields. Why not? Our gleaning was when they would, they would, they'd run the tractors, right? And they'd gather up all the stuff, you know, with their machinery, um, Gleaning was when they, they went out and they picked up what didn't quite get caught by the machines. He said, don't glean your fields. Leave that for your poor friends among you. He said, when you, when you, when you, when you, uh, plow your crops, or when you, uh, when you do, when you harvest your crops, you, the, you know, you're, you're walking behind the oxen and, and you have to turn and there's a corner. He said, well, don't, don't harvest those corners. Leave those corners for the poor. He says, love your neighbor. And then he goes on to introduce this idea. Love your neighbor. Love your brother as yourself. And so they say, okay, I'll do that. But then in the same chapter in Leviticus 19.34, he says, okay, now here's the other thing. When a stranger comes to town, treat him or her like your brother. So love your brother, rich or poor. Love the stranger, rich or poor. Treat them like a brother. Love them. And then in Psalm 136, David celebrates all of creation from the beginning of God's creation all the way through the redemption of Israel with a refrain. And what is the refrain? His steadfast love endures forever. God created all the world. His steadfast love endures forever. God chose us as his people. His steadfast love endures forever. He conquered our enemies. His steadfast love endures forever. He will redeem the world through us. His steadfast love endures forever. It's from God's steadfast love, his redeeming love, his covenant mercy, that all things live and move and have their being. That's the kind of love that is supposed to be in you. The people in your world 
flourish because you're in their world. Even amidst their dysfunction and their flaws and their brokenness, you take a vow, for example, to get married and that vow is, I will love them, not, boy, I wish I had a crystal ball. Because there's boundaries. I mean, come on, there's got to be some boundaries. And there is, there's one. It's when they leave you. It's when they walk outside of the covenant and won't come back. The father didn't chase after the prodigal son, but the prodigal son came back. Why? Because of the love of the father, the redeeming love, the place of redemption and flourishing was where? It was in the father's house. You are the father's house. You, the individual person that I'm looking at that calls yourself a Christian, you are in the Father's house and around you should be flourishing and redemption. And if, and if it won't flourish and it won't be redeemed, it won't be comfortable around you. And it will dispossess possess itself of you. So in the New Testament, we're introduced to agape, one of the four Greek words I talk about. And, that, and, and the word agape has a very similar connotation, the covenant love of God for human beings. Agape love is the covenant love of God for human beings, and then it's logical to presume that it also means our covenant love for him and for each other. And so in this context, with this history of this hesed agape love, we walk into this conversation with Paul, this letter that he's written to the Corinthian church. And here's the deal. The Corinthian church had it going on, okay? The Corinthian church was awesome by everybody's measure. I'll tell you what was happening in the Corinthian church. It was big. It was, you know, it was growing. It was active. There was a lot going on. It was organized. Um, there were people who had authentic spiritual gifts. Remember that God promised, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and it would give them power. So they literally had power of the Holy Spirit kinds of gifts. They could prophesy. They were speaking in tongues and, uh, you know, they were, uh, they had knowledge and wisdom and all these things. They, they, miracles were happening. Miraculous things were happening, but something was missing. There was no love. A church full of activity and full of human success, and there was no love. And so with that in mind, Paul comes in and he starts, he spends, he, he uses this, this book, this letter to them, to address all those issues, one after the other. There is no love. You have this, but there is no love. You have that, but there is no love. And he's trying to help them to, to break down these rivalries and this pridefulness and this, this bitterness and all these things that are churning around in, in this environment where there is no love. So at the end of chapter 12, he says, basically, these gifts are good that you have, but let me now show you a more excellent way. In other words, he doesn't set them in contrast. He doesn't say the gifts are no good. Forget about those. Let's talk about love. He says, but let me show you what all those gifts are for. And he begins in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if you're like me, you've read that and you've thought, oh, that just means it's sort of meaningless sound. But they would have understood it very differently. He was calling them out for false religion. In their culture, the pagan religions, the pagan cultures, cults, would bang gongs at certain times of day and they would clash cymbals at certain times of day. And you'd hear that throughout the city. 
And he'd say, if you, even if you can prophesy, even if you can speak so eloquently and beautifully, and, and maybe the implication is even if you can speak in this angelic language, but you don't have love, guess what? You're no different than, than those pagan religions. Then he goes on to say in verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. There were people in this church who debated, for, for practical terms and modern understanding, they debated theology. They debated the person of Christ and who he was. They believed that God was giving them a word of wisdom. They were, they would, they would argue that, well, what I'm saying to you is directly from the Holy Spirit. So what you're saying in opposition to me can't be correct. And these things went back and forth. And some of them could make beautiful, eloquent speeches and sermons. And it, what did it do? It did what knowledge does without love. It puffed them up. It made them prideful. It entitled them to look down on other people, to look down on the people who disagreed with them. But even all of that, all of those gifts that they had were ineffective apart from love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is patient and kind. Remember, chesed love, agape love, the kind of love that restrains its righteous indignation, its righteous wrath, and instead pours out kindness. Love does not envy or boast. Love doesn't let its knowledge puff up. Love doesn't let it set its let you set yourself up here, and in order to do that, others beneath you. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, that word rude actually is better probably understood to mean it is. it does not um, allow for behavior unbecoming of a Christian. And that would have rung in their ears as they read this whole letter because in different parts of the passage, he had rebuked them for their pridefulness and their, their use of their, their prophetic gifts. He had rebuked women for not thinking about how they dressed and what, what, the, what effect that had on the people around them. He, he talked about that. He, he rebuked, um, rich people for dismissing poor people during communion when they were taking the Lord's table, having these huge feasts while poor people had nothing, had table scraps. So he says, love doesn't allow for behavior unbecoming a Christian. Love requires that I as a Christian think about how what I do affects those around me. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So what's that all about? This is a big one. This is a big one, especially right now. And this is a proclivity of mine. I tend to love when my enemies fail. I tend to love when someone with whom I disagree has a moral failing or is proven to be wrong. I tend to revel in that. I tend to savor that like a fine wine. I tend to talk about it and high-five my friends who agree with me about it when someone who disagrees with me goes down. 
Paul says that's from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. It is not the love of God. And he attaches it to the absence of, of Christ. He, atta- he says it's, you're nothing if that's the way that you use your gifts, if that's the way you use the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this isn't in, a, in a, a naive and enabling sense. It's not to say, you know, the battered spouse just keeps taking the pounding. It's not to say that you, 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 you enable someone in their behavior by allowing them to continue in it and equipping them to do it in one way or another, either with approval or actually resourcing them to do it. But what it is, is it's a tenacity. It's that holding on to that love of God. It's that anchoring up against that island in the storm and saying that I'm going to understand this person. I'm going to continue to have compassion for this person or these people. I'm going to continue to pray for and root for them. And I will never give up. It's a tenacity because of its hope in the future. It's rooted in the chesed love of God and, 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 and love that is bent on redemption and flourishing. That's what that means. So then he ends his, his, his poem by saying this. Love never ends. And then he speaks to all these gifts and abilities that they have. And he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know now in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying you're being like children. Without the love of Christ, without the redeeming love of God as the motivation, as the root of all you do, you're acting like children. And don't you see that now all of these gifts and tools that God has given you are temporary. They're going to fade away. They are not what endures. But then he points them to the end of all, all time. He takes them from the beginning of creation all the way to the end. And he says, what is this all about? He says, one day you will stand face to face and be in perfect fellowship with a loving, redemptive God. All this stuff that you think is important pales in comparison to the things that endure. He says, you were made for this kind of love. And so quit being children. And he ends in verse 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Those are eternal. And the greatest of these is love. He ends by uh, uh, enumerating the three enduring virtues of the Christian faith. And he celebrates the redemptive covenant love of Christ as the greatest of them all. All right, so that sounds really good, and maybe you heard some of that at your wedding and so forth or wherever, but let's talk about the implications for a person living right now, like Tom said. You know, you you didn't come here this morning having, you know, 
savored this for the last you know, few weeks. You've been living life. So what are the implications on my behavior? And this is what, it's like the most miserable personal worship week of my life because it just took everything off the table for me. I could, yes, I was behind a, I was driving down the road just the day before yesterday and a car laid on the horn behind me because I stopped to let an ambulance go through the intersection. And I'm going to tell you that but for the fact that I was studying this passage, I mean, you know, things almost went out the window and I went, no, I can't, I can't do it. I'll, I'll have to, uh, recuse myself on Sunday. I did reach out the window and point at the ambulance. I did do that. And I'm going to tell you, it was not with a loving, redemptive attitude that, that was to encourage his flourishing. Um, kind of wanted him to go around me. And, anyway, uh, what are the implications on my behavior? What's off the table? I'm going to say these things, and I don't mean to be flippant about these, because I know, I know, I know for a fact that there are people sitting in this room who have tremendous reasons to not love someone or to not feel loved by God. But here's the deal. Jesus makes it pretty plain with his life and words. So I'm going to throw them out to you. Here's, here's the deal. What's off the table? I can't hate anybody, not even my enemies. In fact, Jesus went so far to say that hate was like murder. Just like looking on a woman with lust is like adultery. He said hate is like murder, just as guilty. I can't dismiss or ignore anybody. That was the sin of everybody but the Good Samaritan. Remember that? Everybody dismissed and ignored the suffering man. And the only one who turned to the suffering man was the one who that suffering man hated, the Samaritan. And the Samaritan loved the man who hated him. It means I can't demonize and objectify anybody. Not politicians, not the rich, not the poor, not men, not women, not the Muslims, the terrorists, the gays, the straights, the Christians. I can't do that. I can't take human beings and pile them in buckets of resentment and hatred and indifference and categorize them all in one way and not care if they go to hell. Not allowed to do that. I can't just tolerate people in my own world. My wife, my husband, my children, my parents, teachers, coworkers, friends, business associates, those who I don't think like me. My attitude toward the people closest to me and how I speak to them in public, or how I speak to them in, in public behind my, behind their backs matters. Things I forward in my emails about people I don't know. And I do it, and I get them. And if you sent me one, I'm not talking to you. Don't think, oh, he's thinking of me. I'm not. But we all do it. We get an email, and there's people in this email. There's a face of someone, a person or a group of people, and maybe they've even distorted the face or, or mocked them or said something horrible about them. Uh, or maybe even what they're saying is true, but they've smeared it on the computer to send out to the world to, to, to mock and laugh and to high-five each other and to not care and to dismiss the person or people. And, and my question is this. You're holding that, and there's that person standing in front of you. And by the way, Jesus is right here. And you look at that person in the eye, and you say, I love you. And I'm bent on your redemption and on your flourishing. And here's the email I just sent out about you. Jesus makes this very individual, very personal. He tells stories about one person in the relationship to another. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, I love your enemies and hate, I love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Luke, he even says, do good to your enemies. To abide in Christ is to accept that you are hemmed in on every side by that love. That no one in your world is someone Jesus would, would hate. Nobody. Paul said in Romans 5 that even when we were enemies of Jesus, he loved us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that means that all bitterness, resentment, cynicism, self-righteousness, superiority is taken off the table by the one who hung on the cross. And in that moment, what did he do? Anybody remember? As he hung on the cross, surrounded by his accusers and his persecutors, what did he do? By the way, he was surrounded by politicians. He was surrounded by soldiers. He was surrounded by people with whom he disagreed. He begged for God's mercy on them. Those who would nail him to the cross. He was bent on your redemption even when you hated him. And you say, I never hated Jesus. Well, you need to think differently about that. There was a time when you did. There was a time when you were at enmity with God too. And that is exactly and precisely when that God reached through your hatred and your dysfunction and redeemed you and was bent on your flourishing. So he doesn't let us off the hook. Finally, whoa, sorry. Finally, indifference doesn't work either. And here's what I mean by that. I've forgiven, but I've not forgotten. I've forgiven, but I won't forget. Now, I understand that that can mean I'm, I'm going to be wise and, and I, I'm not going to continue to be abused. But what it ought to mean is I'm going to be smarter about how I invest in this person. I will love, but I don't have to like. How do you feel that way and participate in a person's redemption and flourishing? Well, I love you, but I don't like you. But I'm interested in your redemption and flourishing. Now, does that mean you can make yourself like somebody? No, but it means it's your goal. It means your goal is to pray for people until you love them. I don't think you can separate the two. To love means, because if you could, then it would mean in heaven it could be that way, right? In heaven, you could have people you love but didn't like. To love means actively, intentionally have true compassion for people, to protect their dignity, to hope for their well-being, to love them as you love yourself. And what does that mean? It means to give them the benefit of the doubt, just like you expect. Do you have that attitude toward everyone in your life? I don't. I'm probably at odds with some of you, some I know and some I don't even know. But I'm on a journey just like you are. And maybe we need a reason together and love each other. And maybe you need to do the same and you need to seek help and understand that that's your goal is for the love of everybody that God puts in your world. So as I said, in weeks to come, we're going to be looking at what wives need. Husbands, you need to listen. We're going to look at what husbands need. Wives, you need to listen. We're going to look at what families need. Parents, you need to listen. What children need, listen. Through this filter of the unconditional, self-sacrificial, redemptive love of God. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says this. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Speaking of his disciples, of, of, his, of his followers. That they may be one, even as we are one. Being you and Jesus and the Father. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me when? Before the foundations of the world, the love of Christ in you was at work. And it's the love that the people around you need. Let's pray.